It is my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here. We are currently in the middle of transition. Transitions, love them or hate them, right? They're life. Life is transition. I was thinking this week that our church's middle name should be transition. We've been through a lot of transition the last couple of years. Leaders and locations and names. I was even thinking we should just change the name to Transitions Church. People know what they're getting into. <laughs> we announced this month that the Houston family uh, will be transitioning out as lead pastors. Next week will be our family's final gathering here. This last month has been overwhelming, um, both in passing the baton to our board, our staff, our leaders here, but also in handling the emotions of saying goodbye to friends, people we dearly love, people we're doing life with, this close church family. But I want to thank you sincerely for the amount of love and support that we've just been sh showered with and overshadowed with on um, these last few weeks. You're, you're a remarkable faith community, truly. We're so grateful for you. Last week, I, I stated I have two sermons left to preach at Dwell, so I prayed long and hard into what Jesus would have me share with you. Um, last Sunday, I shared what I believe to be one of the more important sermons I've preached, uh, the theme of last week's message. Um, it lies at the core of my faith and my ministry. I spoke about intimacy with Jesus, your greatest calling, your highest calling, the purpose for which you were created. If you missed it, please go back and listen to it. Um, personally, I don't think it gets any more central. I don't think it gets any more essential to what I shared last week. For today, I wrestled with, I wrestled over what to preach on for my final sermon at Dwell, and my mind and heart went in many directions. Um, but on behalf of our church family, I kept being drawn to the question, what now? The Houston family is leaving. Next Sunday is our last Sunday here in L.A. And as you're hopefully aware, Dwell Church is not the Houston family, Right? I'm sure our family has impacted this church. We've offered direction. We've served you. We've helped create culture. But Dwell Church is not the Amanda and Josh show. Maybe a little bit of the Aria show. <laughs> but it's not the Houston show. Dwell Church is the, the collective church family that's doing life together in L.A. It's this faith community that's on mission to offer love and joy and wholeness to a city that needs it so badly. So I want to pose the question, starting in April, now what? The Houston family's transition to Fresno. How does this church family not fall apart, not fracture apart because of this transition? How shall you continue on forward on mission in this city, accomplishing what God has asked of you here? And in that light, I'd like to give you one final encouragement today, one final offering regarding the way forward. Pray for wherever they're going. Jesus, help them. <laughs> Here's what I'd like to submit today. The way forward will be discovered in weakness together. I'm going to say that again. The way forward will be discovered in weakness together. In my prayer time, I found myself drawn to two concepts, weakness and togetherness. Weakness and togetherness. So today I want to preach a message entitled, Weakness Together. And my hope is to inspire your hearts as you continue forward on mission in this city. But I want to take kind of an inverse approach to this. So what we're going to do today is look at two passages in Scripture to help us explore these two concepts, weakness and togetherness, because I believe the way forward will be discovered in weakness together. So first, weakness. American culture sprints from weakness. It's terrified 
of being fragile. Uh, we avoid weakness like the, like the plague. We avoid weakness like Christian radio. Amen? Our, our culture worships the strong ones. It screams strength. It screams get out front, make your mark, outwit the opponent, get the gold medal, go big or go home. And it's probably even more true of L.A. than in most places in the country. L.A. attracts the big fish from the small ponds all over the place. People from all over the country, all over the world even, move here who've been successful, who've been celebrated in smaller arenas. They move here in hopes of becoming the champion of the great arena. Such, a, such an electric city, right? But you know, LA is a hard city. This is a tough place. And it's the precarious and sinister nature of LA. It's, it's deep and it's subtle. I, I think it's revealed in its ability to seduce people to move here. It offers them confidence to chase their dreams, that you can accomplish your dreams. La la land. But then once they get here, the city kicks them in the teeth and it siphons their hope. I've seen it time and time again. The city beats people up. So the message we eat up is resist weakness. Oppose brokenness. And if you find yourself unfortunately weak and broken, at least make sure no one sees it. At least make sure no one knows it. Make sure your shortcomings are hidden. Be an artist. Act your way around your weaknesses. Because you'll never make it here if you're weak and you're broken. And that's not just true of L.A., right? It's human nature. It's our... It's kind of a shared cultural disposition. But there was this guy. He was alive during the first century, and he had a different approach to life. His name was Paul, and he was a Roman. He was, a, he was one of the more, the more elite Romans of his day. He was one of the more elite religious leaders of his day. He was kind of like a really well-known pastor or author. Someone, think of someone like a Billy Graham. He was renowned. He grew up the brightest of the bright. The best of the best, the gold medal religious leader is who he was. And then he meets Jesus. Jesus literally knocks him off his donkey, and Jesus changes his life. It wasn't a good church service. It wasn't some podcast. It wasn't a book somebody handed him. Paul had this life-encountering, life-altering encounter with Jesus, and it transformed him from the inside out. He actually became a different kind of person because of his encounter with Jesus. So Paul starts traveling all over the place, telling us, telling people about this guy Jesus. Not, here are a bunch of things you need to believe to get into heaven. Not, here are a bunch of religious rituals you need to start participating in. He traveled all over the world telling people, you have to meet Jesus, the Christ. The Christ who's been present since the beginning of time. This Christ is in all and he is all. He took on flesh in the person of Jesus. And Jesus' companionship with you, his love for you, will change all the worst parts of you. This is what Paul was up to. This is the announcement that he was making of the good news all over the place. And he's particularly famous today because he ended up writing some letters to churches in towns that he knew. And many of these letters ended up becoming the New Testament that we read today, a lot of the New Testament. Now, one of these letters was addressed to, a, to the church in a town called Corinth. And I want to show you something he wrote to them. Here's part of his letter to the Corinthian church. In order to keep me become, from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast 
all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Anybody ever heard this passage before? It's pretty familiar. I think this one is overquoted, overpreached, but largely misunderstood, and I want to show you why. Paul writes, to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. In order to prevent me from becoming someone whose ego exceeds his talent, whose ego exceeds his likability, essentially to protect me from becoming a tool, I was gifted an annoyance from Satan to torment me. A thorn. Now, we don't know what this thorn was. It could have been a physical persecution. It could have been his ego. It could have been a health condition. It could have been some reoccurring sin. It could have been his passion for deep V-necks. Either way, what, what, what does he say about this thorn? He said, I begged God, take it from me. Three times. On three different occasions, I got down on my knees before the God who created my knees And I begged him, please take this thing from me. God's response, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Translation, Paul, my grace is bigger. It's grander than you think it is. It is more than enough for you even when you think it's not. And my power is not absent in weakness. It's not diminished in weakness. In fact, it's revealed in your weakness. There, in the center of your brokenness, in the center of your inadequacies, in your weakness, my power is realized. It's sharpened. It's perfected. So Paul responds, very well then, I'm going to brag about my weaknesses. I'm going to broadcast my faults so that Christ's power may rest on me. What a shift that we read here. All the things I used to complain about, the things I used to think were distractions or trappings from the enemy, I'm going to celebrate them now in order to experience the power of Christ in my life. It's like Paul has this eureka moment. Like he finally gets it. I've been resisting weakness my entire life. I've been pursuing strength my entire professional and religious career, but apparently I've been missing something. Christ's power desires to take root in me, in my heart, but my heart is less fertile ground when I'm functioning in my strengths. Why? Because I end up believing I don't need God's help. Paul used to think, weakness sucks. When I experience limitation, when I experience frailty, I'm going to ask God, get me out of this. But we see this paradigm shift for Paul. When I'm coasting in my strengths, when everything is going as planned, I convince myself Jesus is unnecessary. But when my weaknesses, when my insecurities, when my imperfections expose themselves, I'm reminded Maybe even forced to get down on my knees before the risen Christ pleading for help. And that's where his power, that's where the power of Christ reveals itself in me. Again, we're quickly drawn to strengths. How has God gifted me? How has he he equipped me in order to make a difference? To transform the world, right? Think, Think of personality type indicators like strength finders 
Anybody done strength finders before? What are you great at? What are you particularly skilled at? Do more of that. In fact, do as much of that as you can. In fact, make your entire career about your strengths. Paul's take, where do you suck? Where are you totally damaged goods? Sit there for a while. And then watch Christ's power descend on you like you've never experienced before. He says, where I'm acutely unqualified, where I'm exceptionally incompetent to do what I think God has asked of me, that's where I'm going to set up my tent. (laughs) I'm going to camp there. Because then, if anything of value is going to be accomplished, nobody but God can get the credit for it. Rather than let your weaknesses take you out of the game, celebrate them. Because they remind you every single day how much you need Jesus. Where the enemy has intended something for devastation or ruin in your life, Paul says it has the potential to put you down on your knees in front of the cross again. Even more regularly, it has the potential for the divine to shine in and through your life like your strengths could never manufacture. So in that sense, let's throw a party about it. Let's throw a party for your brokenness. The problem with most of us is that we attempt to linger in our strengths as often as we can, as long as we can, because there we actually don't need to be dependent on God. If we're honest, many of our prayers reflect a desire to make God less central in our lives. Many of our prayers express a desire to not need God. God, set up my life, set up the circumstances in such a way that you can remain distant. You can remain distant from that. You don't actually have to be involved. I want you to be my God because you have the power to make my life more convenient and comfortable. I don't want you to be my Lord, though, because I don't want to need you. I don't want to be dependent on you. I want to be self-sufficient, so make me strong. I remember praying one of these prayers maybe, I don't know, maybe like five or six years ago, seven years ago. And the Spirit of God convicted me so fast. I was in a tight financial season. I was stressed out about all the bills that needed to be paid. And I remember praying, Jesus, you're my source, not my boss, not the economy, not the president. Can you make my financial situation a little less tight? And almost immediately, I heard back in my spirit, so you want me to position you financially so that you don't need me anymore. Your current financial state has caused you to get on your knees every single day in front of me and call on me for a miracle in your life. But you'd rather me simply increase your income so you don't have to depend on me like you do. Now, I'm not saying that asking for a financial blessing is wrong. I'm not saying that God never wants to give us a raise. But in this moment, I was convicted quickly that my prayer reflected more of a desire for comfort and convenience than it did for intimacy with Christ, than it did for a reliance on his faithfulness in my life. You see, we tend to, to call on the power of Christ when we're lacking. We, we, we call on God. People who are at the end of their rope, they finally call on God, right? We tend to call on God at the end of ourselves when we realize it's all broken. But Paul, he's encouraging followers of Jesus to do this every single day. Not just when things are going south, because this is the breeding ground for miracles. Because Jesus doesn't want to compete with your strengths. 
He wants to take you to the supernatural depths of your brokenness to show you how awesome and mighty he is. Think about the splendor that is coffee. Who thought I wasn't going to talk about coffee in my last sermon? This magnificent gift to humanity from God. What is required for this majestic plant to provide us with this enchantment that it does? It has to be broken all the way down. The cherries are picked. The beans taken out of the cherry, they're roasted. They're ground very fine, hot water poured on them. It must be brought to the end of itself for the real magic to happen. And so it goes with life. The truly meaningful, the truly beautiful emerges from our brokenness. And here's where I, where I want to point the mirror toward you this morning. The emergence of beauty and meaning are magnified when it comes from a shared brokenness. When it's rooted in a communal and celebrated weakness, the, the community, the church family, corporately acknowledging limitations, brokenness, frailty, it gives God so much range and space to show up and reveal himself in us. So in this next season, as you move forward and transition, rather than hide or shame yourself or blame others for your failures and your weaknesses and your brokennesses, do as the Roman did, Paul, boast all the more gladly about them so that Christ's power may rest on this church family. The way forward will be discovered in weakness together. First weakness. Second, togetherness. American culture prides itself on radical individualism. You're not powerful if you need someone. That's weak. Independence is power. Isolation is strength. But I've watched this, this, this ironic, this counterproductive movement that people experience. You see, God created us for intimacy, like this deep yearning, this deep longing, deep, profound longing for intimacy with God and with other people. Deep in our bones, we, we have this craving for intimacy, this shared vulnerability, but we're also terrified of rejection. We're terrified of abandonment. It's like, it's like this like fire and ice that lives inside of us. We yearn to be truly seen, fully known, fully accepted as we are, but the fear of rejection, the fear of being seen and then abandoned after that, it convinces us it's, never to, it's better to never have been seen in the first place. So we avoid authentic togetherness like the plague. We avoid it like Christian radio. Our culture worships the strong ones. It screams individuality. You don't need support. You don't need accountability. Get out from someone else's covering. Stand on your own two feet. Be a man. Be a woman. Find your inner strength. Go big or go home. I just watched Free Solo this week. You guys see that? If you haven't seen it, wow. Beautiful film. At its core, it's a story about a man who climbed El Capitan at Yosemite with no ropes. And you're sweat, your palms are sweating just watching the whole thing, seriously. I can do this solo. I don't need another person to aid me. I don't even need ropes for this. The only reason I need people around me are so that they can video this thing. Talk about radical individualism. 
Now, please hear me. I'm not knocking the film. I, th- I thought it was exceptional. It's stunning and powerful and moving. And it, it, it celebrates the power of seclusion that seduces all of us. In L.A., the impulse towards independence, it's intoxicating. However, I would argue the, the depth of loneliness here, it's potent. The temptation to resist togetherness. You can trust people only as far as you can throw people, right? Because everyone knows if people like you in this city, they're just networking. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're only good to someone if you can further their career. You'll never be successful here if you're needy or dependent, right? This is our cultural disposition. There was this guy, though. His name was Paul. He was a Roman, and he had a different take on life. And one of his letters was addressed to the church in a town called Ephesus, and I want to show you something he wrote them. This is the conclusion to his letter to the church in Ephesus. And I want you to notice how he frames the Christian life in the context of war. This is what he writes. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, Be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Anybody familiar with this one? Let's walk through this one. Be strong in the Lord and in his might. His might. Not our might. In fact, our weakness, right? Once again, Paul's communicating how utterly incapable we are apart from God. Counterintuitively, it's our inadequacy. It's our brokenness. What we think disqualifies us is actually the prerequisite to being used by God. He says, it's not your might that's going to accomplish anything. You enter this battle in brokenness and in weakness and in the strength of the Lord, then you've got a chance. And then he says, put on the armor of God because you're caught in the middle of a war. And this war is not just flesh and blood. It includes the physical, but it is not limited to the physical. What does that mean? It means this war is not against your insecure boss or your egomaniac egomaniac neighbor or your in-laws or the ignorant one on the other side of the political aisle. This war is against a real and spiritual enemy that's warring for your soul. Paul says, in case you're not aware, we're battling principalities here powers, lords of the dark realm. Don't forget this quickly. We get distracted really quick, right? Like life's going on and we just forget we're caught in the middle of this war between a God who is 
adamantly chasing us and pursuing us and this enemy that wants to destroy our soul. We're right in the middle of this thing. They say the devil can't make you bad or make you busy. Just get them distracted on everything that's going on. They totally forget all the stuff that really matters here. Paul says, after you've done everything to take your stand against the enemy, then stand. After you've prepared to stand, then stand firm. And Paul's recommendation for this battle, put on the full armor of God. Interesting selection, though, because it's not the full set that the Roman army wore. I've done some research on this one. You know what weapons Paul chose specifically for this list? This list is in-your-face battle weaponry. It's not stand across a field and shoot, like, arrows. It's not stand across a field and throw spears. This is arms reach armory. The message he's conveying is that this war is going to be a wrestling match with weapons. You're going to be grappling with the enemy. You're going to see his eyes. You're going to get blood spattered on you. His blood, your blood, your friend's blood. This is going to get ugly. It's going to be like a brawl with garage tools. Also interesting language. The purpose of putting on the armor is so you can stand. Put on the armor so you can stand. Paul uses defensive language in this letter. Stand, resist, extinguish. He's not actually saying go destroy the enemy. He's saying try to survive. (laughs) Just try to keep breathing to the end of this thing because you're on the winning side. And I know that might sound timid or pathetic, especially in light of like what the entertainment industry puts out, like Call of Duty or Dunkirk or Game of Thrones. You watch these things like, rah, right? And Paul's like, just don't die. (laughs) Stand. His point is that the general is on the move. Your job is to defend the ground you've been given. Dwell church. The ground you've been given is the west side. Do not give this up to the enemy. You've not been asked to make progress or move, a, move ahead of the one that's in charge. You've been asked to defend the ground you've been given. And the next piece is what grounds this whole thing together. It's what centers this thing. Have you noticed what part of the body is not covered on this armor? What vital part of the body is not covered on this armor? The back. Why is that? I want to make two tangents to make this point. First, one of my favorite fables from Aesop. This is 6th century. A lion used to prowl about in a field in which four oxen used to dwell. Many a time he tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, they turned their tails to one another so that whichever way he approached them, he was met by the horns of one of them. At last, however, they fell a quarreling among themselves. That's 6th century. They fell a quarreling among themselves. And each went off to pasture alone in a separate corner of the field. The lion attacked them one by one and soon made an end of all four. Second, Simon Sinek wrote this about the Spartan army. The Spartans, a warrior society in ancient Greece, were feared and revered for their strength, courage, and endurance. The power of the Spartan army, however, did not come from the sharpness of their spears. It came from the strength of their shields. Losing one's shield in battle was considered the single greatest crime a Spartan could commit. Spartans excused without penalty a warrior who lost his helmet or breastplate in battle. But they punished the loss of all citizenship rights, the man who discarded his shield. And the reason was simple. 
A warrior carries helmet and breastplate for his own protection, but his shield for the safety of the whole line. You piecing it together? Paul does not list back armor because you're not supposed to be watching your back. You're intended to cover the back of the person sitting next to you, and they're supposed to be covering your back. And this is the problem with so many Christian circles today, Christian groups today. They're covering their own backs. What do I get out of this? How do I protect my rights, my privileges, my, ple- my pleasures in my personal relationship with Jesus? Your purpose in this unit is to defend the ground you've been given with your backs pointed to each other. Christopher McCandless, just a little bit before he died alone in the Alaskan wilderness, he wrote, happiness is only real when shared. I think that could be translated into the spiritual journey as well, our faith journeys. It's kind of like our faith journeys are only real when shared. You weren't intended to do life alone. You were built for community. So watch the tendency to silo yourself off from the tribe. And what I'm not talking about introversion here. I'm not talking about Sabbath here. I'm talking about attempting life alone, distancing yourself from knowing and being known by others because your safety and the safety of those next to you is contingent on you guys covering each other's backs. There's an old African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go together. Togetherness is the way forward. Bringing it back to Paul. He ends with a reminder to pray. Keep on praying for each other. He realized if we fail to pray, whatever we're doing, that's not God's work. So commit to praying for each other. Pledge to lift each other up to Jesus often. Because if you can learn to defend this ground, to cover each other's backs, and to pray for each other often, the power of hell will be given no ground on the west side. Weakness and togetherness. This is my charge for you today. The way forward will be discovered in weakness together. I want to invite Jackie up. So we, time, we go into a time of response and worship through song. And a couple of prayers to go back to the back connection table. I don't know what God is doing in your heart right now. What God has been surfacing or bubbling in you. What you've been wrestling over. Maybe you just need a song sung over you. Maybe you need to sit in silence. Maybe you need to get on your knees before the Lord. Maybe you need a brother or sister at the connection table to stand with you and pray over you. I want to challenge you to to contemplate in this moment weakness and togetherness. How can you grow in these during this next season of transition for Dwell Church? Weakness. Where in your life are you white-knuckling out of your power? Where in your life are you resisting dependency on God, relying on your abilities, relying on your strength, relying on your efforts, rather than celebrating your weaknesses and inviting Christ's power to rest on you? I submit this morning, open your palms, accept your limitations, and invite Christ's power to be accomplished in your life. Invite Christ to do in your life what only he can do in your life togetherness. Where in your life are you isolating from the community? How are you attempting to root identity 
out of your individuality? How are you struggling to, to function outside support or accountability or shared experience? I submit this morning, open yourself to the deep and profound longing of your heart for intimacy with others. Allow yourself to be truly seen, fully known, fully accepted just as you are, that you may experience the power of life together. Weakness together. A church family committed to weakness together does not just survive. They will impact the very fabric of the city in which they are. And that's why we're here. That's why this church exists, that L.A., may experience the acceptance of our Heavenly Father and the companionship of Jesus the Christ and the empowerment of the Spirit in us. We've been accomplishing that. And you can continue accomplishing that. And a church family committed to weakness together, they can withstand storm after storm, transition after transition, because there the power of Christ is made perfect. I believe God is searching for faith communities that are inviting his involvement, that are open to intimacy with each other, because those are the type of faith communities that change the world. So may you be that community. And may Christ continue to redeem and make whole our city through this beloved church family. So Jesus, we pray that you would continue using us, this church family, Dwell Church, your church. Continue using this body to redeem this city. Pray that they would be drawn to their weaknesses so that your power may rise in them. Pray that, you, they, that they would be drawn to each other so that they can reflect your unity, God, your holiness, God. Thank you for the goodness that you are doing here, for the beauty that you are doing here pray that you continue that work, you catalyze that work, that you inspire and empower that work with your spirit work here, God. And in this moment, we give you room to work on our hearts. We say yes to your plans, to your will, to your intentions in us. And that this room just be thick with your presence, with your anointing, with your glory, with your grace. your kingdom come in this room as it is in heaven, God. In Jesus' name we pray.